open up in a little word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless the reading of it and the teaching of it, that you would take me out of this message and just your spirit would work in all of our hearts. And we pray that you bless the children and help us as we go through our weeks to uh, be constantly in the Word and have you constantly working on us and give you glory in everything. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start by reading, uh, starting in verse 14. I'm just going to read this section and then when I get, I did more than one section this week. How about that? The, the, the next sections were small, that's why I was able. Um, I'll read just the one section and read the next section when I get to it. So starting in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household fails. falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusts and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. All right, so starting right in verse 14 here. Uh, so as I, as I researched this a bit and was studying it, and you can kind of see this in the text, that the Jews, uh, the Jews did have, I mean, some of these miracles that people were doing, that, I mean, that Jesus was doing, they'd be like, no one's ever even heard of this. Uh, but the Jews did have people that would try to practice exorcism at the time. And you see... Uh, evidence of that a little bit later on. Um, what verse was it? In 19, when he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? So it shows that, yes, they do. They would try to uh, exercise the demons. And so the, strat the general strategy at the time which I don't know if it was effective or not, was to learn the demon's name. And then when you had, when you had their name, supposedly you would have some type of power over them. Now, a little side note, because this is not the first time I heard this, um, but I remember studying uh, in Exodus that this is how many of the ancient gods, that's how they viewed them. Like when, they, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they viewed, the Egyptians would view the gods as, if we can learn their name, then we can call on their name and you know, ask them to do things for us. We get their attention that way. And, and so an interesting little note is in Exodus 3, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, Moses asks for a name. I'm going to just flip back there and read it real quick. Exodus three, thirteen through 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Um, so just keeping that in mind, it's interesting that Moses says, you know, what's, what's your name to take back to the people of Israel? You know, thinking in the context culturally, they're like, so, you know, we can call on you, ask you to do things, maybe you have a little control over you. And God says, I am who I am, which can also be translated as I will do what I will do. Basically saying, you can't control me. I am God. Um, and I, so that, that one always sticks with me a bit. So same, same type of idea though, that they view the name as having power. Oh, sorry, I want to pause here. I meant to read Matthew chapter 12 because it's the same. A lot of times we try to do this and when we have uh, the same story in like one of the other gospels, we try to read it just so we got both of them in our mind. And sometimes there's little differences. Sometimes they're pretty similar. Sometimes they're pretty different. Uh, so Matthew uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All right. Thanks for letting me catch up on that. So back to, back to what we were saying. Back to Luke chapter 11, verse 14. He's casting out the demon that was mute. Now, the important part about the demon being mute is... If your goal as a, as a Jewish exorcist is to learn the, de- the demon's name, the guy with the, that's mute because of the demon, that one's untouchable. You really don't have a shot there. And so a lot of commentators were saying, you know, as Jesus uh, cast the demon out and the mute man spoke, the people marveled. That one of the reasons they marveled is nobody cast out mute demons. That's impossible. Um, but Jesus can do the impossible. He's God. Um, but so, so you have that aspect of the marveling. I also just wanted to point out that you, know, you have a man here that, I don't know, maybe some of them knew for years that has never spoken. Um, demon, uh, Jesus casts out the demon and he speaks. No speech training, teaching, or anything. You're just unable to speak, able to speak. You know, a miracle of Jesus. And I do want to take a quick look at the greater meaning of this miracle. The really, as I've, as I've thought about it with the casting out of demons, I, I've come to really enjoy any miracle that involves, involves casting out of demons because of the greater picture of, of the gospel in that miracle, where evil, in this particular case, but any of them, has pervaded this mute man. And Jesus comes 
and drives the evil away. And the man is changed as the evil is no longer controlling him. And like I said, this is very much a picture of the gospel. You know, the evil is taken hold. Jesus comes in, drives the darkness away, and changes things towards light. And just like with the gospel, as we look in verse 15, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Basically, people don't like it. <laughs> I mean, just, just like with the gospel, for those who, of us who have accepted it and come to love it, we have something where he cast out a demon of a guy that, that, is not, that was mute and now able to talk. Like, what's, not, what's bad about this? But there's always people out there that, that will uh, revile the gospel and not like it. And same thing here. You know, they're immediately, they're like, well, let me think of something bad to say about him. And really, that's kind of what it is, as he logically breaks down their argument and look, makes them look a little bit foolish, is sometimes... When people have to say something bad, they say some dumb things. Um, and we get that here where they say, well, he cast them out by Beelzebub. And yeah, just this lesson that some people will, will disagree with everything and will refuse to believe, uh, even if they see the miracle right in front of their eyes, like it just happened. Um, and their reaction is not to be like, wow, that's some power. Their reaction is, let me think of how this is bad. Um, so obviously I would say they didn't want to believe in Christ. Um, so they have to jump to the conclusion that Jesus is in league with demons. Uh, one commentator, and this, this helped a little bit, so I felt, I don't know if I'd say sympathy, but like it made their argument make a little bit more sense. Uh, the theory, one commentator offered the theory that these dissenters, uh, that they, the, the, they, the dissenters were saying the, the theory that, that Jesus had planned this with the demon so that he would look really good and people would fall in league with Jesus, you know, would believe Jesus, but the demon really was just like, ah, we got this together, now they'll follow you. That that was, that was what, what one commentator said the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of. So it's, I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense, except for it doesn't, because we'll see why. Um, Let's see. So that was, that was one response. And then in verse 16, we see another response. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Um, and this always amazes me. And we see this throughout the scriptures. It's like, okay, Jesus just, just cast out a demon. This guy that was mute is now able to talk. And they say, for us to believe who you say you are, we need to see a sign. And like, it, it always amazes me because it's like, it just happened. Like, you just, you just saw it. Um, and, you know, it's, I know in, uh, in talking with people who aren't Christians, who, who don't believe in Christ, that this, this is a common thought, though. I mean, today it's still a common thought of people. They, they'll say, like, well, if God's real, you know, why can't he just do a sign so that we'd know? Like, why is it so confusing? Why doesn't he show himself? Um, and... This one, I've, I've heard enough that I, I have like a response ready for this. And so I usually say that, you know, well, God wrote a very long and personal book to us. Um, and the person's like, well, you know, how am I supposed to know? I want more of a sign. And then, and then I, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. And I'm like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be something, though, if, like, if God just came down here and did a whole bunch of miracles and told us about himself? And they're like, that's more like it. And... And then, you know, if they haven't perceived where I'm going with this, sometimes they're like, yeah, I get it. You know? um, 
And they'll be like, yes, that's what, that's what we need. And I mean, because that's exactly what he did with Jesus Christ. Um, but even at that point, usually the person would be like, well, that was a long time ago. So the, the gist of this, though, is, I mean, God just, he keeps coming after us. He keeps giving us signs. And it's not that God's not giving us signs. It's that people don't want to believe. And, you know, things, you get sign after sign. You get, the, I mean, as, as we study, like, as I study the Bible, the more and more I read it, the more I'm just amazed by how much he put in there, how, how much I can learn about him. And then, and I see him more and more in daily life. And it's like, he gave everything that you could ever want to us. But people that don't believe don't want to see that. Um, and so as we look at this and we look at this miracle and this happens several times where he performs a miracle and there's people that want to sign or don't believe is that um, really it comes down to if God hasn't changed a person's heart, they're not going to believe. They will want more proof. They will, they will come up with reasons why it's not real. Um, and as, as, uh, as amazing as this sounds, as, as flabbergasting and frustrating as it can be, I think it's also good for us to humbly realize that we would be the same way. We probably, before we were saved, we were the same way. Um, and if it weren't for God rescuing us, we would also just be sitting there saying, you know, the same things like, well, you know, I want more proof. Or, this is wrong. He, it was just a trick. He's in league with the demons. That We're not better than people that are making these arguments. We are just blessed to be rescued by God. Um, so looking down in verse 29, Jesus does, as, he's, as he keeps talking, does answer this question when they say, uh, when they're seeking for a sign from heaven. In verse 29, the second half, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given, it to, given to it except the sign of Jonah. Um, and the part, the same thing with this that always gets me is like the sign of Jonah. That's like the greatest sign in all of history. The sign of, of Jesus going into the tomb for three days and rising again from the dead. And he says, you know, no sign will be given to it. And like you think about this evil and unbelieving generation, they, I'm thinking of just, just miracles. You know, they saw them more than anybody. And not to say that we have any reason uh, that we should not believe as well, and there aren't miracles today, but they had Jesus in the flesh, and he did miracles wherever he went. He healed everybody, um, and yet they wanted a sign, and they would not believe. Now, where would I get to? Yeah, and so just, just from that kind of finishing up that point is that it's not, so like when sharing the gospel, it's not about persuading people to believe. It's about God. Um, it's about God changing people's hearts with his Holy Spirit. So don't feel bad um, if you are unable to persuade somebody of the truth of the gospel. I mean, if we are told to share the gospel. It's God's work on somebody's heart, whether or not they're saved. Um, and same thing with that is when a person rejects the gospel or accepts the gospel, either way, it's really, it's not you as the person sharing it that is, that is being rejected or getting the glory for it. It's, it's just they're either rejecting God or God is saving them. Um, and it's, it all just goes back to Christ. 
And so, oh yeah, so I did want to just hit a couple, couple references here. In Luke chapter 10, verse 13, uh, just seeing the same idea, and we've covered this a couple weeks ago. Uh, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Again, same idea. There's all these miracles here, and they are just refusing to believe. And then also turning ahead a little bit to Luke 16, verses 28 to 31. The story of, uh, with Abraham's bosom and Lazarus. Um, and Lazarus is on the other side of the pit, and he calls to Abraham. And starting in verse 27, uh, he begs. He be- so he's died, and he begs because he's in the not a pleasant place. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we see that with Christ, you know, that they have Moses and the prophets, and yet they didn't believe when the Christ was with them. And they're like, another sign. And well, Christ just was killed and rose back, rose from the dead. And they still do not believe. So moving on through here, verse 17, just a little, little quick, the one there is, but he, knowing their thoughts, I just, I, I've started really taking notice of this all the times where you know, Christ knows their thoughts. You just see a little bit of his, his omnipotence there, his power and his, his, uh, his wisdom, I guess even his social savvy, uh, however you want to say it. He knows exactly what to say, knows exactly what people are thinking. And, and you see it in his responses to people. He always has the perfect answers. Um, and even just thinking in our own lives, um, you know, we can't hide from God. Our thoughts are not hidden from God. Like, Everything you think is an open book to him. So keep that in mind. Uh, So read 17 and 18. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Now I also... That was uh, Abraham Lincoln kind of ripped that one off. I remember in the... Seeing a quote from him about a house, a house against itself cannot stand. You know, he gets a lot of credit for that, but took it right from the scriptures. Um, so yeah, as I kind of mentioned earlier, Jesus takes this this accusation of of him casting out demons by Beelzebub and gives answers it with sound logic. So anybody that's there can see very clearly that Jesus is overcoming demons for the good of people. Like that's just what's happening. Um, and so saying, so basically saying like the saying it's a trick, you know, to, that they're in league together is kind of like saying that there's a, you know, in two armies out about to fight each other. And the one army is like, you know what, we're going to just all go crazy and start attacking and killing each other because it'll trick the enemy. You know, it's like that army wouldn't make it very long. <laughs> And that's his point here is like, if you start fighting yourself and like tearing your own kingdom down, like that's not going to equal success. Um, And then, and with that, an underlying thought here to remember is that Satan is no fool. You know, Jesus, there's, there's a, a level of respect here that like, yes, Satan understands sound logic and 
he's not going to cast out his own demons. He wants to succeed, even though he knows he's not going to. Um, but that, that, yeah, Satan is a dangerous enemy, and he is clever and logical. And so just a little underlying thought there um, to, to remember that our enemy is, is, is real, is strong, and is clever, and that our, really our only defense, who are, you know, if we're honest, not that clever or, or strong, is, lies solely in the power of Jesus Christ. And then also an underlying implication here is the unif- unity of Christ's army, that as members of Christ's army, uh, we are to be unified, that the devil sows division, but Christ's battle plan for his church is unity. And I wanted to read in John chapter 17. So this is when, when Jesus is praying to the Father, uh, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they, they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. And so I just, this is... Uh, a passage here, and reading through the scriptures, this always weighs on me just that the, there's one church. You know, it doesn't matter uh, what you call the different divisions of it or the different, uh, different types, Baptist, uh, you know, any, any of them. There's one church, um, and our allegiance to Christ and his church uh, needs to far surpass any allegiance we have to uh, to you know, our little church here, our, you know, the Plymouth Brethren thoughts, uh, you know, whatever different sect or group, you know, or, and it's not to be like, oh, I follow Paul or I follow uh, Apollos. That's not what it's to be. There is one church and we all follow Christ. Um, and, you know, thinking about that, yes, you know, you think about like, all right, the nitty gritty of, of trying to get along with every church and like, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody that agrees with absolutely everything you think, you know, as far as the scriptures go. But I think, you know, that's where it's important to, to determine what you think is majorly important. You know, Christ being, being God, him coming to, to pay the penalty for our sins, us, you know, being sinful, and, and him uh, coming back to, from, uh, from the dead, and you know, the inerrancy of scripture, those types of things, which are majors. That if a person's not that, then you start to think, you know, I'm not sure if you're in the one church. But a person that holds to those things and loves the Lord, there's a lot of other things we can disagree on, but those are small matters compared to being in the army together with Christ and that we are to be one with them. And then, so thinking also of God's kingdom here, we know that God's kingdom will stand, that God's kingdom is not divided. And he says a little bit down pretty much, but like, you're either with him or you're not. And if you're with him, then you're also with everybody else who's with him, that they are with you. There's not division there. And a little cross-reference to Mark chapter 9, verses, starting in verse 38. 
Oh, help if I'm in the right chapter. There we go. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so not only here do we see the unity, the you know, when other people are working, doing the work of Christ, that we should, you know, be, be praising the Lord for that, that we should be encouraging them. And then even, it goes further, whoever gives a cup of water to drink to a, you know, to a fellow Christian, anything we can do to help them, um, will by no means lose his reward. And so, like, in a sense, we should be seeking out Christians and, and trying to support them and help them. What do they need? How can we help? Um, that we're on, you know, we're in the same army, fighting the same battle, and like, and we're on, so it's like, anything you can do to help any other Christian really is what we're supposed to be doing. So, verse, uh, back to Luke 11, verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So on top of, you know, Jesus giving the logic about the divided kingdom, uh, Jesus points out the hypocrisy in them and that they're saying that he's of the devil for doing the very same thing that their sons do and they applaud. And so you just see it there that when their sons do it, they're like, oh yes, my son has, has cast out demons. How righteous is he? When Jesus does, does it, they say, he's from the devil. You know, it's just, so Jesus is just really tearing their argument apart here. Um, but I also want to kind of turn this back on ourselves as well, that how often, I mean, I know I do it, that we, we dislike something in another person, uh, but excuse or even applaud it, you know, in ourselves. That maybe somebody says something, you're like, well, that was awfully cheeky of them, you know, and like, <laughs> how dare they? You know, but then if, if uh, something comes up and you're like, boy, that was awfully clever of me, wasn't it? <laughs> I really got him. Um, you know, that's just, that's kind of a lighthearted example. But, you know, we easily make excuses for ourselves. And, and uh, but when we see things in, in other people, we're so quick to judge. Um, and so just, just a little, little thought off that is, is just to watch hypocrisy in ourselves and try to, be, try to be honest with ourselves and just humble before the Lord. So overall, Jesus' immediate response to this just makes it clear that he's not in league with Beelzebub, and the people accusing him are, are doing it out of spite, really. So verse 20, oh, this is a cool one. So Jesus says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I love this because he says, by the finger of God. He's basically like, I've just done something that nobody's ever seen before. Like, nobody else can do, and... I used my little finger to do it. You know, it wasn't, I didn't even have to use multiple fingers. I didn't have to use my hand. I didn't have to use my arm. I didn't have to like step into it at all. This was nothing for God. I mean, it was something, but like it scratches the surface of his power. And, and so I, I just love that thought. Um, And then he goes on to say, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Oh, I also wanted to point out, so when it says, but if it is by the finger of God, the, the translation for that is, a more, is kind of a more certain version of if, kind of like since it is by the finger of God. It's not like, a, oh, if it, is it a question? No, it's not a question. Um, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So basically he's saying, it's not that I'm working with the devil, it's that I'm working with God, and that God has come, and we are overcoming the devil, that you see it right in front of you. In verses 21 and 22, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So in this little metaphor here, the strong man is Satan. And the palace that he owns is the hearts of men. And that really, when you think about it, nothing can overthrow him except for something stronger. And looking at ourselves, that means we have no hope on our own. We require Christ to come in and do it for us. And we see here, when one's stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, and that's Christ. Christ is the one that's stronger. They can do it with his little finger. And he overthrows Satan and defeats him entirely. You know, he takes away his armor and divides his spoil. And the other one, I think it said he binds up the strong man. Um, And so basically we see that Satan is strong, but Christ is much stronger. And we see this scene play out. And we see it play out right here with the mute man. We see it play out in the heart of every believer where Satan has control, but Christ comes in and overcomes the strong man that is Satan. We see it play out on the cross, where Satan was in control with sin and death, but Christ comes in and defeats sin and death. And really, wherever Christ goes, this is the picture. He is conquering Satan in whichever aspect, whether it be death, sin, in, the hearts, in our hearts, in the hearts of, of these people, in the sickness and disease of Israel. Sorry, I wrote really small. Oh, yeah. So on a, coming into verse 23. So here we have this whole scene thus far. And Jesus has cast out a demon. Then says, you know, the kingdom of God has come upon you. This gives this analogy where he overcome, overpowers Satan. And then he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. I mean, like, if you're fully aware of what's going on now, you know, it'd be kind of a little shaken. Be like, I want to be with him. Like, like I, I need to be on that guy's side because otherwise I'm doomed. Um, and, you know, you just see his power here. He, he casts out demons. He knows everybody's thoughts. He's stronger than, than anybody. Like, even his little finger is able to defeat, the, you know, Satan in whatever. Um, and we also see this picture that Christ wants to gather while the enemy wants to scatter. And, and again, thinking about the unity of, of Christ that he says with his kingdom here. And thinking of, you know, it's like, I like sports. And just thinking of team players with no focus on their own. Like, I, I really think, it always comes to basketball with me when I think of like a good team player. Like, not a person that's going after, you know, point, the, the guy that does all the little things that the team can succeed, that gets no glory for himself, that that's, that's to be the role that we, we should shoot for, um, that we just want to focus on Christ, that he gets all the glory. And then I, I love, too, how he says, you know, whoever is not with me is against me. There is no neutrality. Um, and you think about how people, if you talk to people, I don't think a lot of non-Christians realize that, that they're like, well, you know, I'm not a bad person and I don't have anything against God, you know, and like they certainly wouldn't say, yeah, I'm in league with the devil. Um, 
But that's not how it works. Christ makes it very clear. If you are not with me, you are against me. Even if that just means you're doing nothing, that means you're against me. Like either you're with me or you're against me. Those are the options. There's no, ah, do I have to pick a side? Or like, I kind of believe in God. That's not how it works. And so it's, it's terrifying, but it's good for us to realize that that when somebody isn't for Christ that we're dealing with, they're for, they're for Satan. They're against Christ. Now, verses 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Uh, and I, so looking at this, I, I think Jesus is saying here that merely getting a demon out of a person is not the point. That the spirit of a person is like an empty house that will be filled with something. We were made to worship God, but we will worship something. Even if we don't worship God, we have, you know, and I know it sounds cliche, but you hear him say there's like a God-shaped hole in every person's heart. But it's true that that's supposed to be there. And if we don't fill it with God, we will fill it with something. And so merely cleaning up your act, reforming, you know, casting out the demon, whatever it, whatever it is, it really doesn't help you unless you fill yourself with Jesus. That, you know, the last state will be worse than the first. When, say you're addicted to something, you know, and, and you get rid of that addiction, but you don't replace it with something, with Jesus, you're going to replace it with something else. And so, and I think, you know, you can see that in people's lives where, where they, they idolize something. And when they move on from that thing, they just move on to idolize something else. And they just move from thing to thing, always, always wishing that they'll be able to find that thing that finally fulfills them. But the only thing that will ever fulfill them is Jesus Christ. So in other words, remember that the important thing, the really important question is whether or not Jesus resides within you. And as I said, a person can really can clean things up, make things look good. But if Christ's not in them, they are careening towards death. And also here we have, you know, kind of the idea of, of just curing symptoms. That as far as like healing or casting out demons with, with Jesus or without Jesus or trying anything without Jesus, like it might appear like it's succeeding. You know, you might be able, like... You might, a church might be able to make it look like, oh yeah, they've got a lot of people. Or, or a person might be able to make their life look like, yeah, they've, you know, they've really got their act together. They've got a nice family, a nice job. Um, but if Jesus isn't in there, it's like you're just curing symptoms. You're just making it look good. But on the inside, you're whitewashed tombs. So verses 27 and 28 As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And I love those two verses. I mean, I'll talk about them, but like I could just read them again and everybody could just enjoy them. Um, Basically, here we have the way 
of the world shouted out to Jesus, you know, blessed is your mother. And Mary, Mary, I would say, was blessed. I mean, she went through some hard times, but also, you know, in, in her way, she was blessed. But that's not the point. Um, and Jesus gets right to the heart of everything by answering, you know, the, the world, worldly wisdom. You know, blessed be your mother. And he answers with godly wisdom. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's what we need to be focused on. That, you know, while the world... It could be shot in a lot of different things, probably different things to each of us, whatever it is. You know, uh, blessed are those with high paying jobs, you know, a loving spouse, a nice family, a beautiful home, a great car. You know, blessed is the one who's really funny and, and you know, has all the friends or what, whatever it is. You know, whatever you think is successful or the world has told you is successful, that they say, you know, that, those are the people that are blessed. But Jesus says, blessed are those who esteem God and what he wants above everything else. Um, and so I guess we'll just we'll finish by drilling that home. Just that everything else behind Jesus is secondary. That loving God and, and esteeming his word and, and learning his word and loving it and getting to know him better, like, there's just nothing above that. That focusing first on him is what he wants. That he wants to be the God of your life. He wants to be the one in that, in that uh, void in your heart that you're, you're going to idolize something. And if you idolize God, you are going to be in good shape. Um, and so just thinking of like all our efforts and our resources that we put, pour into so many various things, they should be funneled towards pleasing God. And forget what the world says. We know that the world is passing away, but God and his kingdom are forever. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that you would work in our hearts, help us to apply it. Um, Help us to, to keep thinking about it and just keep changing our lives and, and bending us toward you and your will. Help us to keep you as our, as our, as our entire focus. Um, give us a greater and greater love for you and increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.